My brother is going to be sharing the word today. He drove here from Cabot, Arkansas. Man. Any Cabot people in the building? One person. All right. Um, I love this guy so much. He is my older brother, so there's a lot of rivalry. If you have an older sibling, you understand. He is mm. going to bring the word today. Make sure you are taking some notes. And would y'all welcome my brother to Fayetteville? Appreciate that, brother. Thank you. Love you, man. Like you said, my name is Ricky. Uh, came from the Cabot campus on Friday. Left literally all of my clothes beside my underwear and shorts at home. And so everything that I'm wearing is brand new. It's the worst experience. But I'm glad to be here with y'all. And just for, for Seth and Kendra, I just want to honor y'all. Man, thank y'all for having me. I know you're moving this weekend. A lot going on this weekend with BBS. And so I'm honored to be here. Can y'all give it up for your pastor, Seth and Kendra? Love them. So if you're unaware, maybe it's your first time here, but you, you're walking into a crazy big vision. We have 17 campuses. I think this is the only campus that is growing during the summer, which is crazy how this campus is growing during the summer in a college town when a lot of the people are gone. Y'all are growing and you have good coffee in the same building. So give yourselves a round of applause for that. Glad to be here. Um, like you said, I'm the older brother. So Seth has always been the bigger, younger, stronger brother. And I've always been the older, wiser, more attractive one. And so that kind of caused a little bit of rivalry growing up. We used to get in fights all the time, um, but I was always smart enough to never actually fight him because I knew the outcome. Just to be honest with you, he was probably going to win. And so I would just use my wits. A lot of times I would make him do my chores. Um, I don't know how that worked, but I would still get my allowance as he did the vacuuming and, and the clothes and the dishes. We had this one argument one time. I remember, I don't remember what we were fighting about, but we shared the same room, which... Is amazing. It's the best time of my life to share a room with Seth, you know. It's just awesome. Um, not. Uh, but we were fighting one time in our room, and we had this Nintendo sign that was literally, this is great, it was literally the size of his keyboard, like lengthwise, but it was bigger. And it was on the sign. It was a hard plastic. And I literally thought this sign could not come off the wall. I never saw it off the wall before. Seth and I were arguing. And Seth used to, he may still have, I don't know, if to ask Kendra afterwards, he used to have this anger streak he would get. Like he used to be able just to snap. And you saw it in his eyes, and when you saw it, you knew it was time to get out of his way. So I would either run, I would stay at a friend's house, I wouldn't go in our room. But he got this look in, our, in his eyes. He was like 12 years old. He yanked this Nintendo sign off the wall over his shoulder, looked me dead in my face, and said, I'm going to kill you. And when he said it, I knew that look, and I knew he was serious. I don't know if you ever had anyone tell you that they're going to kill you and actually mean it, but that was Seth. And so I'm not going to tell the rest of the story in detail because it's highly embarrassing for me. I ran down the stairs, cried to my parents, and they broke it up. Um, but I'm thankful that Seth found Jesus a few weeks ago. Your pastor is in love with the Lord, and so um, love him like crazy. Um, that story has nothing to do with the message whatsoever. So this is my transition as I talk to you right now. I'm transitioning into the message. And so I want to talk about faith today. Look to your neighbor and say faith. Look to your neighbor and say faith. Talking about faith. And I've realized this season of life that I'm in that you can have faith in Jesus, but it still not be exactly where it needs to be, that it needs to increase and that it needs to grow. And so I want to talk about that today. Sometimes in our life, we get on autopilot. In the past 12 months, I've realized that my faith was on autopilot. I was pastoring people, but I was still just doing the same thing over and over and over, almost mechanically and methodically. So maybe you've been there. Um, I've wrestled as a teenager even, but even now too, is it okay as a Christian, as a believer to have faith and to have doubt? 
Is it possible to have faith in God, but also to doubt that he's going to show up, to doubt that he's good all the time? That's kind of the topic today. And, and look, for a lot of us, we've seen God be good in the past, right? And we've seen God be good in the future. But it's like right now when all hell is breaking loose, is God still good? Do I still have faith in who he is or is my doubt going to overtake me? And so I want to talk about Hebrews eleven six to start today. Let's read this together. It'll be on the screens. If you have your Bible app or your Bible with you, it'll be in Hebrews chapter 11 and Genesis 22. Hebrews eleven six says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So without faith, it's impossible, literally impossible to please God. Without faith, we cannot please God. So it's important to know what faith is. So we could Google, we could ask our neighbor, we could phone a friend. But Scripture actually has this a few verses earlier in verse 1 of the same chapter. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. Everyone say, sure. Sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. No, but your word, it never fails, Lord. So we can stand on it. Your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That the heavens and earth may pass away, but your word never will. So, God, we stand on it, we lean into it, we press into it today. In Jesus' name, and the church said amen. Amen. So if faith is what pleases God, what do we do when we have doubt? As a believer or someone in life, what do we do when we have doubt? Doubt is to call into question the truth or to lack confidence in something. I'm going to tell you all who I lack confidence in. Anyone who enjoys deep-sea fishing. Raise your hand if you like to deep sea fish. Just okay. So we're going to pray for you after service down here at the altar. I lack confidence. Anyone who enjoys deep sea fishing, the worst six hours of my life was going deep sea fishing with my family a few years ago. My family's laughing because um, it, it was absolutely miserable. There is not an English language word that describes the, the turmoil and distraught that I felt on this fishing trip. How many of y'all get motion sickness, car sick, you get nauseous? How many of y'all have been deep sea fishing and got sick? There is nothing like it, my friends. Y'all are, y'all are real Christians. So I remember we, we were on this trip, and, and we were bait fishing for the um, smaller fish to catch the bigger ones. In the middle of bait fishing, it was like someone just punched me in the face with seasickness. But the thing is, stop laughing. The thing is, is that I had a Dramamine the night before, a Dramamine when I woke up, a Dramamine on the way. So I thought I was good. And then we get out there, and I get seasick. I get so seasick, I probably need to repent from this. I took a handful of Dramamine and just knocked myself out. That's how miserable I was. I was crying to the captain of the ship, telling him to take us back to shore. And he's laughing at me, saying, man, we can't do that. And I was like, look, we paid you. You do what I say. And he's like, we're staying out here fishing. And so it, it was miserable. But I lack confidence in anyone who enjoys deep sea fishing, roller coasters, riding in the backseat on road trips. Like, I just get so <laughs> nauseous and sick. Oh, where are my people at? I mean, that, that is... It's terrible. If you've never experienced that, you should thank the Lord every day. You don't have to do anything with that. When it comes to doubt, when it comes to lacking confidence in something, there's a difference in having the thought of doubt in life and engaging with doubt. There's a difference in having a thought of doubt and engaging with doubt. See, having a thought of doubt is being human. Engaging with doubt is a plan of the enemy for your life. So what the enemy wants to do is he doesn't want you just to doubt But he wants you to start there because if he can get you to doubt God, if he can get you to doubt God's word, if he can get you to doubt God's character, then he can get you to deny him at some point in your life. And so I want to address today, if faith is what pleases God, what do we do when we have doubt? 
The title of today's message, if you want to write it down, is Remember the Resume. Remember the Resume. Let's start in Genesis uh, 22, verse 1, here in Scripture. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Everyone say tested. So I'm a youth pastor, so I expect, you know, people to talk while I'm talking. So everyone say tested. There we go. All right. So he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. So if you're new to church, this is one of the crazier pieces of scriptures and stories in the entire Bible. The entire Bible is not this way. Don't freak out. But God said, go take your son, sacrifice him. The word tested right here in the Hebrew, it means tested. So God was testing Abraham. Matthew Henry said it this way. Every trial, he's a Bible scholar from hundreds of years ago, says every trial tends to show the dispositions of the heart, whether holy or unholy. The way that I would say this is what you're going through has a way of, what's, of showing what's in you. I'll say that again. So what you're going through has a way of showing what's on the inside of you. And so next verse in 3, part A, it says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. So you have in verse 2, God said, go sacrifice your son. The very next verse, Abraham wakes up early the next morning. What I want you to notice is the pace of his faith. And I want to tell you today, the pace of your faith matters. The pace of your faith matters. Because if faith is what pleases God, when God speaks, we should move. We should act in faith. When we delay, that is not faith in a way that that could be doubt in our lives. And so the pace of your faith matters. Point number one to go with that is act in faith for the future. When you have doubt in your life, when you're questioning God's word, when you're questioning, is this going to turn out the way that I've been praying? Act in faith for the future. So can you imagine being Abraham the night before? I'm going to read into the text a little bit. This isn't actually there. This is just how I picture it in my mind. If I'm Abraham, I'm not packing the bags for the donkey until everyone's asleep. Because my friends, my families, my two little kids, they ask questions all the time. He'd be like, hey, Abe, what are you doing? Hey, Abe, where are you going? Hey, Abe, that's a really sharp knife. Why are you sharpening it? You know, like, so I, I, I just picture Abraham is doing this as they're sleeping. And if I had faith like Abraham, and most of y'all would probably agree, I would be a mess knowing the next morning I'm waking up to go sacrifice my son. There would be snot. There would be tears everywhere. I would be crying. And what I'm learning in the season that I'm in is that some tears carry more weight than just water. Some of you know you're in that season right now that you crying is not just water. It's emotions and it's memories and it's dreams and it's maybe a crushed relationship. Or maybe you worked your butt off for that job and someone else got the promotion. Maybe you've been praying for someone that you love to be healed and it didn't work out the way you had been praying. Maybe you did everything God told you to do for that relationship and it still fell apart. Some tears carry more weight than just water, waking up with the pillow still wet. I can imagine if I'm Abraham, that's me in this story. What I'm learning is how much pain you can walk through is an indicator of how much God can grow you. How much pain you can walk through in a holy way with the Holy Spirit is probably an indi indicator of how much God can grow you. How many of y'all, you like to lift weights, you go to the gym often? It was like three of you. Yeah, we saw your arms walking in. It was real cool. So <laughs> just kidding. Security. Um, there's a saying in the gym culture that there is no pain. There is 
no pain. I have this saying, no pain, no pain. Like if you're not working out, baby, there is no pain. You just eat Taco Bell, $5 boxes, it's all good. But I've heard that when you lift more weight or when you do, when you do more reps, that, that your muscles tear down even more. That is more painful, but that you can grow more, your muscles can grow more afterwards. Our faith is a lot like that. Our faith is a spiritual muscle that sometimes painfully has to be exercised in order to grow. Your faith, a lot of times, is what I'm learning, has to be painfully exercised in order to grow. So Abraham waited 100 years to have Isaac. Now all of a sudden he has to die. Now all of a sudden this word, this promise that he received from God, if he doubted enough, was being called into question. But Abraham had a word. How many of y'all right now, just by a show of hands or a head nod, you have a word from God and you're waiting on him to move in that. You're waiting on him to move in that scenario. Romans 10, 17 says this, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And man, I've continued to learn that it's not unlike God to remove every sense of comfortability I have to see if I'm still going to stand on his word. And maybe he's doing that in your life where everything that was comfortable has been shifted to the side to see if you're going to stand on his character, to stand on his word. In verse 3b, it says that he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place. Everyone say place. He set out for the place. The right side is here. The left side is still asleep. That's okay. Um, He set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. God told Abraham to go to a very specific place. But what Abraham did not know is that in the future, in this specific place was going to be a very specific provision. Sometimes the provision can only be found in a specific place. You have the story of Zacchaeus. In scripture, it says that when Jesus got to the spot, he saw Zacchaeus in the tree. You have blind Bartimaeus. It says that he was in place on the side of the road when Jesus walked by, and he received his sight. Even King David, before he was king, when Samuel came to anoint the next king, David was not actually with the rest of the brothers. He was in place, out working with the sheep, and they knew exactly where to find him to anoint him to be the next king. Someone, I feel like God sent me to say that you need to get back into place. You've been a Christian a while, and you've strayed off for whatever reason to get back into place, or maybe it's to get into place for the very first time today. The type of faith that pleases God is when we do that, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it hurts, even when we have questions. In verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. So I do this thing with my kids called a dad tax. Has anyone ever heard of a dad tax before? Okay, so it's when, like, if I'm cooking something premium and they want chicken nuggets and french fries, which is what kids always want, I feel like, or mac and cheese or something stupid, honestly, something really easy and cheap. But every now and then, like, the french fries, they still look good, even though I have, like, a premium fish over here on the side or whatever. And so I'll grab a couple fries off of each of their plate, eat them, and out loud I'll say dad tax. And they get upset, like, you don't... Why are you eating my food? I'm going to be hungry in the morning. Like, my daughter gets emotional sometimes, and she'll start crying over French fries. It's like, Ellie, chill out, baby. It's just dad tax, just a few fries. Um, 
in this story, Abraham takes it to the next level. He takes the only donkey and literally makes the other three guys walk for three days. And so I love that. But my kids, like, they get all been out of shape when I take their food. And they're like, hey, that's my food. Or, hey, that's my drink or whatever. And I'm like, nothing in this house is yours. Any parents say that before? <laughs> nothing in this house is yours. And my mom used to say this thing, and this is what I say to my kids all the time. I brought you into this world and... Which ironically gets us back into our story with Abraham and Isaac. So, y'all are sick. So, um, verse 5 says, we will worship, we'll come back to you. It brings us to point number two, is to worship in the present. To worship in the present, worship right now. Abraham took the wood, in verse 6, for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and carried the knife. I think it was for protection. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Sometimes, this may be polarizing, sometimes kids ask the dumbest questions, you know? Like, this is not one of those situations, though. Isaac has a good point. Most scholars say he was a teenager at this point, maybe a late teenager, And so what I see in this text is because Isaac was old enough to carry the wood, Isaac was old enough to realize something's missing. He had seen sacrifices before, and he's like, hey, there's not an animal here. But because Isaac is old enough to carry the wood, Isaac is also old enough to rebel against his father's word. But in this story, there is not one written or verbal or physical exchange of resistance between Isaac and Abraham. I'm convinced that in private, Isaac was either taught or he caught the principles of worship, obedience, faith. If my father says it, I can trust him. Even if I have questions, I'm going to obey my dad. And so parents, grandparents in the room, the question I want to ask is, what are you teaching your kids? Or maybe even more importantly, what are they catching from you that you're not trying to teach them? As we see in this text, when Abraham said, we will worship. There were no instruments, there was no red-bearded man, like there was, there was no lights, there was no fog. There wasn't even anyone singing. Abraham said, we're going to go worship. But they never actually sang. Because worship, a lot of times in our life, is a posture of our heart being put into practice. It's not always coming out of our mouth. Sometimes it's just us walking in obedience. That's worship. Sometimes just moving in faith is worship. He said, we'll worship. We will come back. He's saying, God, I trust you. God, I have questions. You're asking me to go kill my son. I don't understand this all, but I will worship. Is worship really worship if it can't survive a storm? Can you worship when things don't make sense? Can you worship when it hurts? Or do we pull back and start asking questions? And look, God is a big God. I tell our students in Cabot all the time, God's not intimidated by your questions. And to a great extent, he welcomes our questions. But if you only worship God when your questions are answered, or when you only worship God because it makes sense, that's not the type of worship that he is looking for. It's not the type of worship that he is worthy of. Worship as you wait. I was praying over this message last night, and I feel like someone right now, you're in the waiting room. You've been waiting on the surgeon for a long time. And God is saying, worship as you wait. The waiting room is not punishment. Is God putting you into place so he can grow you, so he can align you to receive the fullness of his word, to receive the fullness of the promise he is giving you? Worship as you wait. 
And then point number three is to recall from your past. Turn to your more attractive neighbor and say, recall. <laughs> Turn to your other neighbor where you were just put in a weird spot and say, I'm sorry. Martin Luther says it this way. He's also a Bible scholar from in the past. He said, the strength of your faith is based on the credibility of the character of the person you put it in. The strength of your faith is based on the credibility of the character of the person you put it in. Some of y'all have a friend that's always late. Some of y'all, you are that friend. Raise your hand if you're that friend that's always late. Sweet Lord, there's a lot of, and you're in first service. You made it. Congratulations. I have this friend, when he tells me, hey, we're grabbing coffee at 8 o'clock, I know literally that means 8.30 to 8.45. Or if he texts me and says, hey, I'm on the way, I know his shoes aren't even on yet. Like, I I know that about my friend. Based on his track record with me, I know how he's going to be in the future. And it took me a couple months to figure that out, and now I'm like, okay, I know his tendencies. Or maybe um, when you go to a cookout, go hogs, or you go to like a, um, a game or you go to a hangout and people are cooking and making all these dishes as a potluck, which kind of scares me because there's cat ladies that have cats on the counter, which is always kind of sketchy. But when you, <laughs> when cat ladies offended right now. Um, okay. Uh, so when you go to that cookout, I have friends that I know can cook. I'm going to grab their dish before I grab someone else's. I'm not grabbing that like lukewarm potato salad. I'm not grabbing cat ladies, weird-looking casserole. I'm going for what I know. If I want barbecue in Fayetteville, I'm going to Wright's. If I want coffee, there's many options, but I'm going to Onyx. Like, like I'm going to those places because I know they've done me well in the past. God has been good to us in our past. We can recall and look back at the credibility that he has established and know how he's going to move in the future. In verse 8, Abraham answered, to Isaac's question, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered and said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the altar, on top of the wood. Scripture does not give us the emotional state of Abraham or Isaac in this story, but we could probably correctly assume what they're feeling right now. But you could tell that doubt had been destroyed in this family because neither Abraham nor Isaac are asking questions to their father about what's about to happen. They're just moving in faith. They're moving in obedience, even though it didn't make sense. If you haven't noticed, Abraham is building an altar to kill his son. I got a four-year-old, and man, it it tears me up teaching this sometimes because I I don't know if I could do that. If God said, hey, go and sacrifice your son, I don't know if I could do it. When God asks us to do something that contradicts what we can see or what we can understand, when it contradicts common sense or any sense, God is asking us to do something so he can teach us something. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And in verse 10 it says, he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. This might be a polarizing thought, but grief is better than guilt. And what I mean by that is at least right here, Abraham, after he sacrifices his son, can at least say, God, I did what you said. God, I don't have a son anymore. I'm upset. I don't know how the promise is going to come true that you told me, but I did what you said. It's a lot better than saying, God, I didn't do what you said because I didn't trust you, and now I'm guilty. 
but instead he's grieving. He is upset. And I feel just for three or four people in the room, this is for you today. You did exactly what God told you. And you're grieving and you're hurt. I know. But that's better than being guilty from rebelling against what he told you. It's okay to be emotional. It's okay to be upset. But you, you did it in obedience. You're not guilty. Being in a grieving season is better than being in a rebellious season. And in verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Here I am. It's the same thing that Abraham said in verse 1 when God said, Take your son, or he, he, he just said Abraham. Abraham said, Here I am. Now we are 10, 11, 12 verses later. Different situation. His son is tied to an altar. Still the same response. Here I am. God, what do you want to tell me? Here I am. Though his circumstances changed, his faith did not. His obedience did not. His worship did not. In Genesis 12, 10 chapters prior to now, is the first time that God spoke to Abraham and said, leave your family and go to a place I'm going to show you. In Genesis 22, he says, leave your family, take your son, and go to a place I'm going to show you. Do you think that Abraham realized the parallel? Do you think that it sounded kind of the same to Abraham? I believe that it did. And I believe that, that Abraham could recall the past and how God was faithful then and how God moved then. Abraham knew God would be faithful in the future too. What God did in your past was done to shape your confidence in this season right now. What God did in your past was done to shape your confidence in him now. Reflecting intentionally on your past reminds you now of what God is capable of in the future. And look, based on how I've seen God move in my past, I believe he's going to show up again. And I believe it's going to be good. I don't know when it's going to happen. But I know that God is faithful. I know that he is good and I can stand on his word. Abraham said, here I am. And in verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he caught a ram. He saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. Someone needs to hear that today. The Lord will provide. And to this day it is still said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So in our story, the, the altar where they're at, in a sense, represents obedience and worship and faith. But in another sense, and for generations to come, this altar is representing a place of remembrance. It is a place where they can remember God's resume. Because in the Old Testament, these altars would be built time after time when God showed up. So when families are walking by, so when generations are walking by in the future, there might be a kid say, hey, Dad, what's that stack of rocks for? Well, that's where God did this. Hey, Mom, I see that altar over there. What is that? And they would explain to the next generation how God showed up in the past. Noah built one after the flood. Abraham, he built three. Isaac built one. Jacob built two. Moses built one after defeating the enemy after crossing over the Red Sea, Joshua built one after reaching the promised land. What in your life can you go back to to remember God's faithfulness? What have you built? And maybe it's not a physical structure, but what have you established to show generations to come that's where God is faithful? 
That's where I've seen him show up. Abraham, he had this altar to trust that God knew what was best and that God was doing everything for his glory and for Abraham's good. And just like the ram in the thicket, what if what you've been waiting on, what if what you've been praying for came unannounced but just looked a little different than what you thought it was going to look like? There's a song that I'm in love with right now, and some of the lyrics say this, wouldn't it be like you, referring to God, wouldn't it be like you to be different than we thought, different than we want, but better? The same thicket that Abraham walked through is the same place the blessing came from. So what if what you're walking through is the same thing that God is wanting to use to bless you? What if this season that you're in, God's going to bring a blessing out of it? But you still got to walk through it in faith. You got to walk through it in obedience and walk through it in worship. God developed Abraham's faith in the wilderness, in the desert. And look, not every desert in your life is from the devil. What if your desert season was actually designed by God to develop you, to grow you, to, to reach a level that you weren't at before, to increase your faith? in spite of your doubt. Please hear me, whether your test is directly from God or God just allowed it to happen, he's wanting to build your faith in this season. And the enemy is after your belief system. He is after your hope, he is after your faith. But I wanna tell you, if you've been hearing the enemy whisper to you, if you've been hearing him talk to you, you should be shouting what he is whispering about because the enemy is a liar and he cannot tell the truth. And so if he says your family's not going to make it, you already know how it's going to end. If he says you're not worthy, you're not loved, you already know the truth. It's the opposite. So if he says, hey, this marriage ain't going to work, you don't know my God. Hey, this ain't going to work, this this isn't going to be, you don't know my God. Do you have more faith in your doubt or do you have more faith in God? Do you have more faith in the enemy's whisper or in God's whisper? See, God has this resume called the Bible where he has shown up time and time and time again, where he has been faithful that we can look at it if we would take the time and see that he has been good. And based off his resume from Genesis to Revelation, we can see that God is exactly who he said he's going to be. In Genesis, he is the presence hovering over the water since the beginning of time. He is the seed that bruised the serpent's head. And in Exodus, he's a cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity, and into the promised land. Leviticus in Numbers, he's a high priest interceding for his people in the holiest of holies. And in Deuteronomy, he's a bearer of everlasting arms. And in Joshua, he's he's the captain of the host of the army of the Lord. And in Judges, I see God as the sword of the Lord fighting for his people. And in Ruth, he is the husband that takes on the imperfect bride, consistent, faithful, in First and Second Samuel, he's the voice calling Samuel into the priesthood. And he is a rock that came from a slingshot to take down the giant. And I believe he's going to do it in your life too. And in First and Second Kings, he is this whirlwind of power, a chariot of fire that called Elijah to heaven. He's the power given to the prophets to do miracles over and over and over again. And he's going to do it in your life. And in First and Second Chronicles, he's a full glory and presence and splendor of God that filled the temple of Solomon from wall to wall. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, he's the voice calling the nation of Israel saying, go home, rebuild the walls of that city because God is always about rebuilding things to their proper status. And in Esther, he's a queenly figure interceding for the people that she so dearly loves. And in Job, I see God as Jesus 
crying out to God, saying, even though you slay me, I will trust in you. I trust in your word. I trust in your plan. And in Psalms, he's a good shepherd that leads us by still waters who restores our soul. And in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's a wisdom and wise instruction from a father to his son. In the Song of Songs, he's a lily of the valley and he's a rose of sharing. God is beautiful. He is faithful. He is good. And in Isaiah, he's the perfect and flawless lamb, wounded for our transgressions and crushed for my sin. And in Jeremiah, in Lamentations, he's the voice calling Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I sanctified you. I ordained you to be a prophet unto the nations. And in Ezekiel, he's this wind that comes from the four quarters of the earth that breathes into a valley of dry bones. He wants to breathe into what's dead and what's dry in your life and bring it back to life. And in Daniel, he's this rock that came from a mountain to crush all other opposing nations. And in Joel, or Hosea, he's a loving and affectionate husband who redeemed the wayward bride. And in Joel, God is our provision. He is my provider. He is the former and the latter reign. He is what I needed yesterday, what I need now, and what I need forever. And in the books of the prophets of Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, he's the voice of those prophets spoken since the beginning of time that prepared a work for Jesus to come and restore your soul and mine. In the New Testament, he showed up as a baby. In the book of Matthew, swaddled in cloths, lying in a manger, but make no mistake about it, he was still the Lion of Judah. In the Mark, he's the healer of the blind. And Luke, he's the great physician, the Christ of Calvary, and the resurrected Lord. And in John, he was the word who was made flesh that dwelt among us. And in Acts, he is the power and the giver of power given to new believers on the day of Pentecost to shake the world upside down. And I believe he's going to do it again. And in Romans, he is the only perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament law that's good enough to get you and good enough to get me into heaven. And in the letters to the Corinthians, the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians, he is the perfect doctrine of his church, fighting for that doctrine, fighting for his church, the church of Jesus Christ. In the letters to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he's a dedication of those three young men's entire life dedicated to furthering the gospel for the name of Jesus. And in Hebrews, he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He is the author and sustainer of our faith. And in James, Peter, John, and Jude, please hear me, he is the greatest the most faithful power of the universe, Jesus, God is the power of love. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, church, please hear me, Jesus is the revelation. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He's the culmination to what you're going through. He, he's the answer. He's the culmination to the conflict of the ages. He is, his name is Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is good. He is faithful. And based on his resume, you can put your trust in him. So maybe you're new to church. Maybe you've been going to church your entire life. I want to remind you all the way from Cabot, Arkansas, that God is good. He is faithful. Because of his resume, we can trust him. No, I don't have all the answers to the questions. I don't know when the miracle is going to happen, but I believe it's going to happen because of God's resume. In Scripture, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, all said these three words to God, here I am. And even in the garden, before Jesus is about to take the cross, he didn't say those words, but he said, God, not my will, but your will be done. 
my translation, the RIV, that is, here I am. So these heroes of our faith, they say, God, here I am. My question to you today, NLC Fayetteville, is what do you say? When God is calling you out on the waters, when God is asking you to move in faith, to be, to be obedient, to worship, what do you say? Let's close our eyes this morning. Let's pray together.